In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Do you recall the account of the rich man and Lazarus? You know, Lazarus, the beggar who lies at the door of the rich man. You all, you all remember that account. Good. Because that's the account I prepared my sermon on for this morning. <laughs> Coming from another diocese, it's not always, our readings are not always complimentary. And so forgive me, I made a mistake. But I do want to talk about Lazarus and the rich man. So you're going to have to strain your memories. One of the things that I'm grateful to my parents for, and I must tell you that as I grow older I become increasingly grateful. You know, sometimes a teenager is not always appreciative of his parents. Too strict, too hard, not generous enough with the money, too many curfews, you know the list, I'm sure you can add to it. But as we grow older, and especially as we have children of our own, we learn to become increasingly appreciative. And we say, you know, boy, the parents did such a good job. I must tell you, I'm so grateful to my parents for the love they showed me, for the upbringing and for the, the standards and morals they gave me. And also, I have to tell you, for the good name they gave me. I found that I can travel throughout the mining community of Canada and when people hear my name, they'll say, oh, you must be Bud and Bill's son. I said, yes, that's right. Oh, and you know, I'm warmly greeted. In fact, you could say that much of my life when I was up in Canada, I rode on the coattails of my parents' good name. And for that, I truly am grateful. You know, names are so very important. In the book of Genesis, God gives Adam that great blessing and that great honor of being able to name the animals. To know a name, to know a name means to have power and authority over. And so by naming the animals it shows that, that Adam is superior. Man is superior to the animals. And the names reveal the true identity of an individual. That is, of course, before the fall. After the fall, everything is mixed up and it doesn't work quite as well. Very interestingly, the Hebrews are surrounded by races of people who worship various gods. And the people around them all know the names of their gods but not the Hebrews. Their God is not to be pinned down in such an easy manner. He's only known as the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their forefathers. A moment of, of crisis comes when Moses stands before the burning bush. He's crossed, he's crossed the Red Sea with, 
the escaping Hebrews and they've come to Mount Sinai and they're, they're no they haven't done that yet he's on his way to to Egypt and he stands before the burning bush and he receives instruction from the Lord of how he's go, supposed to go to Egypt and deliver the people and Moses has a hard time accepting this who am I? You know, how, what can I do? And then he comes up with another excuse and he says, but Lord if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say? And this is one of the most important moments in the Old Testament. The Lord replies, I am that I am. He doesn't give his name as a noun, but rather as a verb. A verb that speaks of existence. I am the one who exists. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Abraham, say this. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered in all generations. I am. In the King James Bible, I am is translated as Jehovah. Most scholars today suspect that it probably was pronounced more like Yahweh. But whatever the case, the Hebrews held this name as being so holy and so important that they substituted another word instead of saying the name of God. They would say the Lord. And this also is important because in the New Testament, Christ is often called the Lord. Sometimes I get those sectarians knocking at my door and they seek to upset me and they say, you know, Jesus isn't called God in the Bible. And I say, oh yeah? I said, actually he is. He's called God by Thomas. When Thomas reaches out his hand to touch his side, he says, my Lord and my God. But even throughout the New Testament, Christ is repeatedly called the Lord. And that implies that he is God. The Holy Spirit is also referred to as the Lord telling us that he is God as well. The Ten Commandments nevertheless protect the name of God and people are forbidden from using it in vain. God knows who we are. In holy baptism the priest says these words over the infant. Inscribe his name in the book of life. The book of life is the book of judgment which Revelation tells us will be open on the last day. And there the Lord will see the names of all those who are worthy to enter the kingdom. Needless to say, not to have your name in the book of life is very bad. God knows everything and yet he doesn't know the name of each. Christ is a good shepherd. And in describing the Good Shepherd, Christ says these words. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. 
Christ knows our names, however, however, he doesn't recognize everyone as he's created as belonging to him. It's a terrible thing if God refuses to say our name. In, in Matthew, the Lord says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many works in your name? Then I'll declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Names are very important. After people encounter God in the New Testament, they usually get a new name. Jacob becomes, or not just the New Testament, the Bible. Jacob becomes Isaac. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. When we join the church, we also get a new name. Our real identity is to be manifest. In baptism, we're given the name of a saint for the reason that we should have someone to imitate, that our true identification will be with that saint and God will recognize us. Now, today, we should have, according to my reckoning, we should have had an interesting parable. The Lazarus and the rich man. This is the one and only parable in which the Lord gives names to the people mentioned. Sometimes if you read various translations, you'll see the rich man called Dives. Dives is just the Latin term for rich man. But truly we don't know who he is. He remains anonymous. The only thing we know about him is that he's clothed in purple and fine linen and he feasts sumptuously all day. Well, you know, the Orthodox Christians fast twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. We're imitating the Jews because the Jews used to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And the fact that this man, this rich man, feast sumptuously every day means he's ignoring the guidelines and the traditions of his fathers. He's not a very pious man. Not pious at all. Cyril of Alexandria asked the question, what conclusion are we to draw from this? Nathan, he replies, the rich man being uncompassionate is nameless in God's presence. For he, the Lord says in the Psalms about those who do not fear him, I will not remember his name with my lips. In America, we live in really conflicting times. Excuse me. There used to be a time when if a person was a millionaire, he stood out. Now you have to be a billionaire. And increasingly there are more billionaires in America than ever before. However, poverty is also greater than it's ever been before. And so we have that, the two extremes. 
Some people will talk about those individuals who are on welfare. They'll say, oh, those people, Father, they're so lazy. They just take advantage. They're irresponsible. They buy trifles and they want more. That's a very common accusation that I hear. And undoubtedly, some people said that about poor Lazarus lying at the door of the rich man. Why does he just lie there? He gets money from the temple. Why does he need any more? He's always baking. Look at him. Why doesn't he get up and take care of himself? I'm sure there are those attitudes. Some things are universal. But notice, in this parable, the rich man is not condemned for not giving Lazarus steak. He's condemned for not giving Lazarus the crumbs that fall from his tables. He's not condemned for not seating him at his table, but for ignoring him. Lazarus is at the gates of this rich man's house and he's got a clear, a clear view of this man feasting. And that means that the rich man has a clear view of Lazarus. And as we see later on, he knows Lazarus by name. But he steps over him. Even the small dogs fare better than the rich man's house. And in life, Lazarus treats, or in life, the rich man treats Lazarus very poorly. And in the afterlife, he treats him like a servant. He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my burning tongue. And he says, when that's refused him, he says, well, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so he can warn them. Lazarus knocks at our collective doors. In 1963, for some of you, this will be prod at your memory. For others, this will be a history lesson. In 1963, Martin Luther King organized a march of poor people, and they came to Washington, D.C. He was trying to force the government to pass some, some equal rights legislation. And one reporter asked him, he said, what are you doing? And his response, oh, oh so biblical. He said, I'm bringing Lazarus to the door of the rich man in order to save the rich man. But marvelous words. You know, Lazarus stands not only as a condemnation to the rich man, but he stands as an opportunity for the rich man to gain salvation. And so there's something very positive about this. But I have to say that ignored Lazarus dies of hunger on the rich man's doorstep. But there are many forms of hunger. In the United States, too many are starved for love, for care, for dignity. They hunger for attention, they're abused, they're forgotten, they're throwaways. Go to the nursing homes. Years ago, I remember when I was part of the Romanian Episcopate, we were collect after the fall of communism, we were collecting care packages to send over to the, to the elderly who were in desperate needs. 
because they had no food, no shelter, no clothing, no love, no place to go. And so we Americans were trying to help them the best we could. But you know, if you go to American nursing homes, you're going to find people clothed and fed, warm, dry, with their own bed to sleep in. But you know, there is such loneliness in those, in those old age homes, those care homes. Often people there don't get any visits from friends, from church members, or even from family. In a sense, they're forgotten. They're people who need our love and who need our support. One in ten people in America, according to the statistics, is alcoholic. That speaks of a desperation. That speaks of an addiction. One in four women, we're told, is sexually abused. What a dreadful thing that is. Mental illness and depression abound. America is filled with hopeless, despairing people. More people in America know the name of their psychiatrist than they know the name of their priest. What does that say about us as a society? Even in the parish, many suffer in unhappy marriages, feel neglected, unloved. Beloved, this should never be so. I'm convinced that many people remain in sinful conditions in life because they don't know that there's nothing we can ever do to stop God from loving us. Did you hear that? There's nothing we can do to stop God loving us because that's the nature of God. He loves. He loves. And repentance can always reunite us to God. And so we Christians, as sinful as we may be, know that there's hope. Know that as soon as we tear up our pride and bow our hearts towards God, He will receive us back with joy. There's more joy in heaven over the one sheep that's found than over the 99 who are never lost, we're told. In America, we literally see people dying on our, on our doorstep, starving because of sin, because they don't know God. What are we going to do? If we don't share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, we face the same condemnation as a rich man who wouldn't share any of his material blessings with poor Lazarus. Evangelization is not just a program to grow our church. It's a program to help, to bless, and to save our neighbors as well. We heard in today's epistle that good deeds will not gain us the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is always a gift given us from God. However, whatever faith we have is to be buttressed by good works. And the Father say, do the good works, even if you don't realize the importance of doing them. Do them, because somehow the faith 
will grow from that how important it is that we reach out and do good works. Already we're in the Thanksgiving season and in many ways it seems like we've jumped the Thanksgiving season and, and already are into Christmas. Walk through the aisles of Costco. My heavens. You know, they're already pushing the Christmas trees, the Christmas lights, the Christmas ornaments. They abound in every store. The merchants are getting ready to sell. They're prepared. The question is, are we prepared? How are we going to celebrate Christmas? How are we going to give thanks to the Lord for what he accomplished for us by sending his only begotten son into the world? More importantly, does he know our names? We can't buy our way into heaven by good behavior. However, however, in the book of Acts, there's the story of Cornelius, the pagan centurion, to whom the Lord sends St. Paul, or sends St. Peter, I apologize. He sends Peter, because Cornelius is a righteous man whose prayers have ascended as a memorial to God. And God hears that. Let God also see our prayers and let him see our righteousness in order that we too may be remembered by God, that he may know our names and on the great day comes of judgment, he'll accept us into his holy kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.